The central idea of the book is that force, when rulers and commanders apply it, is a function of concentration. In the 80s and 90s, we thought it was all about changing the context of cooperation, and we didn't realize it was going to change the regime's ability to comprehend its enemies. Hey everyone, welcome to the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. I'm Captain Haziano, an instructor of American politics in the Department of Social Sciences at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. I'm also your new producer for the Soch Podcast. Major Tom Fox just recently completed his tour at West Point and is now off to continuous service back in the Operational Army. From all of us in the Soch Podcast team and the Soch Research Lab, we send him our thanks for his incredible contributions and wish him the best of luck in his future endeavors. So, for this episode of the Soch Podcast, we've got Dr. Michael Warner and Lieutenant Colonel John Childress on the show to talk about their new book, The Use of Force for State Power, History and Future. Dr. Warner is currently a historian with the Department of Defense and has also worked as a historian for the CIA and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Colonel Childress is currently an instructor at the U.S. Naval Academy, but he's actually also a Soch faculty alumni from West Point, having taught here in 2010 to 2014. They were interviewed by current social faculty member, Dr. Hugh Liebert. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, this is Hugh Liebert, Associate Professor with West Point's Department of Social Sciences. And I'm here today with two guests, Dr. Michael Warner, who's a historian with the Department of Defense and an adjunct professor at American University, and Lieutenant Colonel John Childress, an instructor at the U.S. Naval Academy. Um, and we're here today to talk about their new book, The Use of Force for State Power, History and Future, which is just out from Paul Grave Macmillan. Uh, so, John, Michael, welcome. Uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, for this conversation about the book. And I'm really excited to talk about this because I, I, I just finished it. And I just want to congratulate you on, on this wonderful achievement. Um, it, it's a sweeping history of war and a really provocative argument about uh, where some important trends are headed. So maybe just to kick us off, um, can you just uh, give us you know, the, the main idea? What, what are you trying to do in this book? And um, you know, kind of sum it up for people. Sure, sure. Thank you very much, then. Um, this is Dr. Warner here, and um, thanks also to the U.S. Military Academy for making this possible here. Um, John and I are, of course, speaking in our private capacities, even though we both work for the United States government. Um, our book is something of a blend of military history and political theory. We are interested in how rulers and commanders apply force effectively internally and abroad. Uh, we think we found a theoretical bridge, as it were, between domestic and foreign, between military art and intelligence and security, between kinetic applications and cyber operations, uh, both back in the past and in the future as well here. So we're trying really to bridge a whole lot of different concepts here. The central idea of the book is that force, when rulers and commanders apply it, is a function of concentration, that that function does not change over time and across cultures, even though its factors change dramatically, especially with the evolution of technology and ideology. Those factors of concentration are cooperation, conveyance, and comprehension. In other words, how do you work with your friends against your foes? How do you move people and supplies and orders to do so? And how you know where to be and when to break your enemy's concentration? How is it that rulers and commanders from ancient times 
have been able to bring force to bear at the right time in the right place and to make their adversaries divide their forces, to distrust their allies, to, to make it so they fear to come together against the ruler or the commander here, whether on the battlefield or in the city-state or in a modern country now. Um, we notice how these factors change over time, and uh, we think that we see them uh, from, from Aristotle and Sun Tzu through uh, a host of, of commanders and political theorists over the centuries in on into cyberspace now. We think that cyberspace operations, whether run by military or intelligence and security organizations, are, are running in much the same way that they're applying these same principles now. And so um, with that, that's sort of the book in a nutshell, and uh, we'd be happy to answer, answer any questions that you have on that. Sure. Well, maybe it would be helpful, um, you know, just to walk through what some of the major periods in your story are. Like, what are the major transformations that you're looking at, and how does the cyber revolution fit in the, in the, the theory of kind of what's changed over the course of history? Really, what you see is most places, most people, most rulers and commanders around the world have sort of intuitively grasped these principles. It's, it's, you see a few people sort of writing them down um, and trying to think about them, but, but only in isolated ways. You'll have Aristotle talking about how a tyrant controls a city-state through sowing distrust among the people there. You'll have Sun Tzu writing about um, how a, a commander knows that when the adversary is united, you must divide that adversary on the battlefield and deal with the different parts of his army instead of his whole army together. But it's really only in early modern era uh, where the West is sort of able to reach out around the world. And, uh, and, it, and it sort of makes Europe's problems and issues into the world's issues here. Um, you, you'd seen empires come and go from ancient times, but you'd never really seen places like France and England and, and, and even little countries like Portugal being able to reach out all around the world and put down colonies all over the place there in places um, such as India that had long military traditions that had many, many more people in a much larger economy that these European colonizers were able to extend their power in that way because they could master force on the margins. They could master sea power. They could master navigation. They could control the trade and the access to resources. Um, you see another big jump forward with the Industrial Revolution and particularly the sort of the, the rise of ideologies in the West that, that split these European powers against themselves and against each other, ultimately in a series of, of just horrendously costly and bloody world wars in the first half of the 20th century. You're beginning to see it now um, with the internet age and the, the ability of people to, to, to be interneted, to be networked all around the world. Now you're seeing a whole rise of other players here with a, a globalized economy, you're seeing all sorts of people able to, to wield power, to make people do things that they would rather not do online as well as in, quote, the real world, unquote, here. And, and what John and I do is we end our book on kind of an uncertain note because we're not really sure 
in which direction this this historical trend is going to go. Um, does it does it sort of balkanize or divide the world into to sort of rival camps, um, or 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 is this sort of crisis that we seem to be living through over the last ten years or so is this just a passing phase? Before we actually kind of reach this promise that um, of the, that looked clear in the 1990s that the internet was going to be a force for democratization in an open society. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up because that's to me one of the most um, I guess provocative arguments of the book is that the, this initial optimism that uh, you know uh, analysts and liberal democracies had for the internet uh, might not be panning out, and so you make this argument that um, it might be the case that the kinds of surveillance awareness of the population all of this this new kinds of you know new kinds of knowledge that the internet makes possible really strengthen authoritarian governments and make them sustainable in a way that you know we didn't anticipate maybe is it possible for authoritarian governments now to overcome the problems that uh, you know that previous authoritarian governments faced as dr warner said our our book really thinks of the framework for force in three variables right so there's cooperation conveyance and comprehension I think at the end of the Cold War, we had this idea that the internet was going to empower almost entirely citizens to see the way the Western world worked, to be overcome by the ideas of democracy, and ultimately to reject the ideology of the regime where they lived. If that happened in our framework, what happens is you undermine the basis of cooperation for that old regime. And that was the sort of aspiration in our sense of what the internet did. What we're discovering, and I don't know what the final answer to this is, but what we've discovered is that, that not just the internet, but the internet of things and big data analytics, which is the ability of the state to surveil and then make sense of all that information at speed and then across a nation. What that does is it also empowers the state to comprehend its population differently. If on the one hand, we were betting that the internet was going to sort of destroy the basis of cooperation and the state would collapse. What we've also found is these tools, particularly the ability to make, make sense with big data analytics, also changes the way the state can approach the, um, its, its governance. So it can now identify enemies, its enemies quickly. It can then premise itself on the ability to confine them and it can adjust the ways it governs. It could, I think, transform the way it governs so that for example, an example I like to think of in the context is Chinese. They can maintain political stability, but they can relax a lot of social controls that used to be necessary. And as a consequence, they can develop economically. Now, these variables feed back and forth across each other. But I guess to simplify, I think that in the 80s and 90s, we thought it was all about changing the context of cooperation. And we didn't realize the way it was going to change the regime's ability to comprehend its enemies. Yeah, so if it's the case that, you know, states like the Chinese state, other authoritarian regimes are sustainable now, you know, can, can be durable, like, to what extent does that create a situation that's comparable to the Cold War? I mean, one of the things you guys write in the book that I found really interesting is you, you talk about how we should think of the Cold War not only as an opposition between two very powerful, you know, entities that can deploy a lot of force, but also have ideology as a component of that force. So they really offer two ways of life that could be persuasive, you know, could, could really be attractive to people who are considering which way their own society should develop. To what extent is that still true? Is the authoritarian model in its uh, Chinese form or any other form that you, that you guys are starting to analyze, you know, um, is it that kind of an attractive option that can pose an alternative to, you know, to the ideological like option that the West offers or liberal democracies offer? 
it's certainly attractive to um, any number of dictators in a lot of different countries, um, but they like the, the, the ability to control a population. Um, I, it's, it's difficult to say that it's attractive to um, a whole lot of people in those countries. Um, China is a very interesting case. Um, China is uh, uh, China's a civilization that's 4,000 years old, and it has never really stepped beyond its neighborhood. I mean, we're, re we're in our lifetime here, just within the last 10 or 20 years, witnessing something really remarkable in that the Chinese are now players in all sorts of places, in Africa, in Latin America. And this is, you know, I mean, this is, it, it just sort of remains to be seen how far this will go. I mean, is, is this um, something that really just is that, that, that President Xi is promoting and it will end with him? Or um, are we sort of seeing a much more cosmopolitan and, and global outlook in China there? Um, certainly, the, the, there's not, I mean, the, the Chinese have a, there's certainly an ideological state. It's a party state with a ruling ideology um, but that's not an ideology that's particularly attractive to a whole lot of people. I mean, that was the, that was the marvelous thing about Soviet communism, um, uh, marvelous in that, that we marveled at it, not in that we thought it was a good thing. But communism had passionate, heartfelt adherence, um, especially in the 1930s with the collapse of Western economies and the rise of fascism. You had people who who just thought that communism was was the wave of the future and the only ideology, the only part of the world that is really standing up for human dignity. Um, by the end of the communist era, by the end of the Soviet Union, there are very few people that believe that anymore. But there isn't that sort of ideological appeal, that sort of cultural draw that China has. And so in that sense, the situation that we're in is not quite a Cold War. We don't have to deal with that from China. Perhaps in uh, another generation we will, but uh, we certainly don't now. Yeah, if I could add one thing, I think that's the biggest difference is that the authoritarian models that seem to be still relevant are, are made relevant, are made still possible by this change in um, incomprehension through big dialectics and so forth. But that doesn't mean that their ideology is evangelistic in the same way that the sort of communists had this emotional appeal and an ability to kind of evangelize other populations. So I think the mental model of the Cold War could be helpful in the sense that you do have centers of power that are sustainable and at odds with each other. But the only catch is the Soviet Union and the, the uh, communist ideology, at least initially, had this kind of like emotional, persuasive, evangelistic power that it we don't seem to have from the opposing ideologies at the same moment. A slightly different kind of question. I'm just curious about the um, the method you guys use to pursue the questions that you're interested in. You, know, you have, as I mentioned, this wonderful sweeping history from the ancient world up until you know, the latest uh, developments in the present. Um, you mentioned two books uh, early that that have something to do with this approach and taught you something about how to think about power as it develops over time. Uh, two authors, rather, Foucault and, and McNeil. Uh, who do, William McNeil, maybe not as widely known as Foucault now, but this great, you know, uh, mid-20th century historian at the University of Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, who, but so how how do you place like the methods that you all use to get after this question? Um, you know, with respect to those two authors and maybe some of the other uh, approaches that people could take to get after the same questions. 
Very good question. That's um, not we hadn't really thought of it in that way. Um, what we were talking about when we cited Foucault and um, McNeil, we were sort of trying to revive the spirit of meta history, I yeah. guess. Um, I mean, if you if you spent time in graduate school in history in the United States, um, it it's it narrows you to one subject. It narrows you to a period. It narrows you to a country. Um, you're really not supposed to be um, writing histories about um, whole sweeps of country, countries, I should say, and rulers and systems over centuries. Um, that's more of an English thing than an American thing. But but I, I've, I've always kind of found those histories to be interesting. Uh, I don't always agree with them. Uh, I might differ with them very much in, in, in their interpretation of um particular incidents or in their larger conceptual frame. But the idea of doing that is, I think, helpful in that it gets people to try to draw connections between a whole bunch of different disciplines and a whole bunch of different historical and, um, and social science findings there. Stravinsky, the, uh, the, the composer, Igor, um, Igor Stravinsky had a, um, he basically he said the Mediocrity imitates genius plunders. Um, I mean, I think personally I'm closer to mediocrity than genius, but um, but in that sense, I can be sort of a, a small-scale plunderer, I guess. I think Dr. Warner's right. One of the methods we used was a, a sort of wide-sweep meta-historical approach. The other thing we did very begin from the very beginning was we were very self-consciously interdisciplinary. Um, Dr. Warner has a historical understanding what I was bringing to the table was um, a sense of some of the political concepts and the political philosophy, at least as I interpret it. We, we sort of began with that puzzle. And we we self-consciously tried to take the what we deemed to be the best from both fields. The writer that was most influential to me or the one where the light bulb came on most to me was actually Plato and the Republic, where he describes um, the, the dog. Because the unique thing in, in the Republic is this dog can tell a friend from a foe on no other information than seeing the the person, which um, you know he he he's holding up as what the guardian can do, but it's not something we've been able to do. So as we built this book, we began with um, Plato in my mind, Aristotle was there as well, um, and then um, we brought in this broad sweep of history. We event we initially thought we were writing a full theory, but realized as we sort of worked out the whole historical implications. We really were just sort of sketching out a rough framework and then trying to test it against the whole. If I might add to that very quickly, um, our working title for a little while was Plato's Dog. And um, we realized that this would be putting us into the um, pet care section of the local bookstore. And so we had to abandon that at some point. Although it might not be the worst thing for, for sales, right? You can speak to two <laughs> markets <laughs> at the same time. Well, since you brought up Plato, let me ask about that. So the the uh, you know the Republic is it's very many things, but among them is a, is a work about education and about mm -hmm. how we should you know train uh, the dogs, the guardians of society, so they can be most effective at their function, their job. So since this you know we're associated with West Point here, uh, John, you're associated with the Naval Academy uh, now, but have been at West Point previously. How should we think about the education of our guardians in light of the results that you know of your research? I think what we sort of suggest is well, so the way Plato wants to talk about it is a kind of 
a, a process to win about the person with the right character, right? The one who has the right understanding. Um, and that's what education says. In, in one regard, although I don't want to abandon the idea of character, I think what, what I'm pointing to or what we're pointing to in this book is that it, it's a sort of informational change or a, a, it's a process change. For now, you from now, a government can anticipate finding its enemies before they can really gather the strength to challenge the regime. That's really not something we've been able to do before. We've always had to wonder what might happen. And so we've had to put in controls in case um, you turned into my adversary, but now we can relax those things. So in some sense, it's the ability to see within the society and you can act as if you're the dog. Now, the education I think is almost an independent question because um, you could act wisely or unwisely with that. But the book suggests and observes is that there's this change in the dynamic where for the first time, governments can premise themselves on being able to identify these people instead of having to prevent all their adversaries from getting together. If I could, um add a little bit to that. Um, I had a professor one time when I was um, a, a teaching assistant um, teaching military history at the University of Wisconsin many, many years ago. I had a professor who said, um, one of the things I want you students to understand is that no matter how bad or how good you've got it, somebody has had it worse than you and someone has had it better than you. And I, I thought that was very wise. Um, I, I, that's sort of something that's stuck with me ever since. And and if if we can if we can convey that little bit of wisdom right there to our our, our future guardians, our our up and coming um, military officer class, um, our graduate students, um, that's a great thing. But the other thing that we can convey, I hope, is the idea of courage. Um, we live in a system that is um, a, a wonderful experiment. And I'm not just talking about the American constitutional order. I'm talking about the, the Western reliance on law and representation and um, sovereign government of the sort that is sort of sketched out by Hobbes and Locke and even Jean-Jacques Rousseau at his, at his best moments here. Um, the idea that we live under law and that we serve the common good. And that really, when it comes down to it, is as we found, as I tell people in this time of COVID and the uh, coronavirus pandemic, um, making history isn't as fun as reading it. It's 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 a little bit terrifying sometimes to live in in, in certain historical moments. But what one needs is the courage to be able to trust in law and to be able to trust in the institutions to be able to trust in this sort of larger ideal of the common good that, that, that we are working toward um, through our own individual human efforts uh, and, and that some sort of power, call it Adam Smith's invisible hand or call it providence or call it grace, will make something larger out of our efforts there. That is something that um, isn't always remembered in the heat of the moment and and sometimes takes courage to apply in one's own circumstances and in one's own little slice of history. Well, that's a wonderful note for us to end on. Thank you both very, very much for joining us. Um, talking about this great book, Use of Force for State Power. Um, that's all we have time for, but thanks again, John, Michael, for, for being here. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Soch Podcast. 
As always, the views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and do not reflect the official positions of the U.S. Military Academy, the United States Army, or the Department of Defense. If you enjoyed the content and can't wait to hear more from us, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever podcast streaming service you're using. Be sure to also leave us a five-star review while you're at it. If you've got comments or even critiques, get in touch with us by emailing soshresearchlab at westpoint.edu. That's S-O-S-H, research, lab, at westpoint.edu. We're always looking for future episode ideas from our listeners, social alumni, as well as friends of the USMA Social Sciences Department. And last but not least, special thanks to the West Point Band for allowing us to use their music. This is Captain Yano signing off, and hope to see you soon. Thank you.